welcome to Help, Hospitalist Evaluating Literature for Practice. Today is January 11th, 2017, and we are here for our second episode. We're super excited about it. Um, we have myself, Dr. Beth Liston. Um, I'm the Director of Research and Scholarship here at OSU Division of Hospital Medicine. And we also have... VJ Dugarala, one of the additional Ohio State hospitalists. And we have... Uh, James Knight, I'm uh, our Hospital Medicine Division Director of Medical Informatics here at The Ohio State University. Uh, and as last time, opinions expressed on this podcast by any of us are not meant to be representative of our institution. Um, we are giving our own opinions here. Correct. We agree. <laughs> well, so then we were talking about how we might need headphones for this, right? And you have some awesome gaming headphones. Is that true? Uh, I have headphones that I like for gaming. They're not terribly high end, but I do enjoy them quite a bit. Okay. How come we're talking about me again? I, I thought since I talked about donuts last week that we were going to talk about BJ this week. I, right. need, I need a pair of headphones then. Oh. So I was just trying to understand. What are you going to use your headphones for, BJ? I will use them for gaming. I have what a PlayStation. Types? So I, I used to have on my PlayStation 3 a gaming chair with a head helmet that used to go over it. <laughs> so I used to just... Now there's a picture in I my used head to relax. <laughs> We need to have that as but, the image for the podcast. But with the PlayStation 4, there is no more gaming chair. I've grown up a little bit, and now I don't even have headphones. I just have a little, you know, earbuds. So today we will be discussing an article that I picked out, published uh, in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, titled Comparing Three Different Measures of Frailty in Medical Inpatients, a Multicenter Prospective Cohort Study Examining 30-Day Risk of Readmissions and Death. It's by Dr. Belga et al., and they're from the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Alberta in Alberta, Canada. So I enjoyed this article, even before we get started, I enjoyed this article simply for the long title and 30-day readmissions and death. I think outcomes are uh, one of the things that we're all looking to impact. But I think one of the other things that most hospitalists are able to identify pretty easily is frailty. If we see it, we know what it is. There's multiple different definitions for frailty, but there is no succinct definition used by all of us. So I call frailty someone who looks old and decrepit. James, what do you think frailty looks like? Or Beth? Well, I guess my first question is, do we really know it when we see it? Or maybe do we really see it? Um, you know, our patients are laying in the bed in the hospital. Uh, and depending on when I get there and what they're up to and whether they're out um, you know, actively being evaluated by a physical therapist, I may never see my patient do anything other than lay in bed or sit at the side of the bed. I may have absolutely no idea how frail they are. Um, I, uh, you know, the other thing is this, this article uses the timed up and go test. And um, I don't know if you guys had ever heard of that before, mm -hmm. but I saw that done in uh, geriatrics clinic when I was a resident here years ago with um, uh, Bob Merton and Jim Lamb, and in um, I, I thought that was very uh, useful, quick, and, and informative. Um, uh, but I can't say I've done it in the hospital. So frailty, yeah, I don't know if you maybe you know it when you see it, but I don't know if I have the opportunity to see it clinically. I think that'll speak to one of my passions, which is interprofessional collaboration. Not part of this, but I'll just interject that you're right. I don't know that we do a lot of these things, but it is done in the hospital, right? We have that opportunity to at least gather that information. 
Although I'll have to say, I sort of hate this article, so I'll just, we'll, we'll see how this goes and um, we may have good discussions on it. I do agree that things that look at 30-day readmissions is super important these days for so many reasons, both in keeping our patients healthy and also making sure that, you know, we're really making that good transition to the outpatient setting and, and doing all we can. So I, I love the concept and we'll get more into the article. So there's actually quite a few frailty scores out there, and um, you know there's things such as the Freed score, which has five criteria. There's things such as the Cumulative Deficit Model, which has close to 70-plus criteria and probably isn't used by any of us clinically. Um, the Clinical Frailty Score was actually a score that was created by this group of researchers and published about a year ago and verified as well. And then, like James was saying, the get-up-and-go test or the timed-up-and-go test is, a, is another one as well. The primary study aim for this article was to compare the frailty assessment using the clinical frailty score, which this group actually created, versus some of the other scores that were out there, including the Freed score and the timed-get-up-and-go test, to determine which tools best predict post-discharge outcomes. Their methods um, was a prospective cohort study and it enrolled adults, anybody over the age of 18, at, excuse me, at the time of discharge from seven general internal medicine wards in two teaching hospitals in Alberta, Canada. The study was performed between October 2013 and November of 2014. Now, the exclusion criteria is quite extensive. It included patients who were being discharged to an LTAC, patients being discharged to an acute care hospital, patients being discharged out of the Canadian province of Alberta patients who couldn't communicate in English, patients who had severe cognitive impairment, and patients with a life expectancy of less than three months. Can you clarify when it says they excluded people going to long-term care facilities? Is that SNFs or is that LTACs? So that is a... They did not clarify in the article itself for us. So my assumption, the way I took that, is that they're going to an actual long-term acute care hospital versus a skilled nursing facility, but we were not given clarification in this article. Or does that have particular meaning in Canada that we don't know? <laughs> it may. I think there may be some lost in translation, which we'll not be able to understand at this point, unless we get some further input from the authors themselves. And or a Canadian listener. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now, the frailty assessment that was used in this specific article, there were three specific frailty scores that were used. Number one was the clinical frailty score, with a score of five or greater being considered frail. There was the timed up and go test, which is basically someone standing up from a chair and walking. If it took greater than 20 seconds, that was defined as being abnormal or frail. The Freed score was assessed based on self-reporting, and it was evaluating weight loss, self-reported exhaustion, low energy, or slowness of, great, of gait. The, weak, the weakness, um, the fifth assessment, was assessed using grip strength of the dominant hand using the jammer handheld dynamometer, and a score of three or more was defined as being frail on the Freed score. Dr. Liston, do you carry your jammer handheld Manometer with you on rounds? Always. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I like people, patients to squeeze. But I will say that to that point, um, some of the authors on here are from the occupational therapy department. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that that's, you know, it, I don't know if they carry those around, but it may be something that OT people use more, you know, we could use more collaboratively. I, I also kind of want to point out that for me, as I said, I, I, I might have said something negative about the article, but a lot of it is simply... There's a lot of, like, my eyes glaze over because of numbers and scales and scores and stats. and um, But the, the frailty score, the clinical frailty score, just to clarify, 
all they're kind of saying is it is if you need help with one or more ADL, then you're frail, right? That's how they divided it. All the other categories were not frail, and the worst categories were just worse on that. So that's kind of the touch point. Frail, help with an ADL, not frail, don't need help with an ADL, right? So that's how I kind of clarified it in my brain to try to get the numbers together. So, Any comments in terms of their methods? Well, I think we've already stressed the exclusions. Yeah. So, I mean, I had the same same concern that they're taking out some of the most frail patients, I felt. Patients who were going to an LTAC, they had to be transferred to another acute care hospital, or those that have severe cognitive impairment. I look at those patients, and I would think they would likely be the most frail population, and they're actually being excluded from the evaluation of... But at the same time, we're getting perhaps the most important information. So this is of patients that we send home, which of those patients are actually at risk of readmission or death? We know the people we're sending to an extended care facility are at risk of readmission. Um, But getting insights into the people that we're going to go ahead and send on home, I think is actually very helpful. So at first I was a little annoyed at their exclusion, and then I was like, you know what? This is a patient population that's pretty important to us. But what I see is we're saying... Do patients that can't do their ADLs at home have a harder time staying at home? That's what it's saying, right? Are these frail patients as defined by they can't do their ADLs? Do they have more trouble when we send them home? And so that's where I I feel like we may be just looking at stuff that's self-evident, right? We're defining it as you can't go home, sending them home, and then measuring whether they come back to the hospital. So in addition, one of the things the methods didn't go into further um, details about was they didn't try to actually inform us of how they tried to power this study or how many patients would actually be required. So there was a whole power statistics, which was not evident in the study, which I would have liked to see to try to get uh, a better idea of how they went about with um, collecting data and how many patients were required for each of the evaluations. Finally... The last group that I really want to talk about was that group that they excluded that couldn't speak English. Now, we know that this is Alberta, Canada, and we know that not being able to speak English in the U.S. or is a barrier for some of our patients to appropriately understand their post-discharge care. So I understand that it may be a confounder and they were trying to remove it, but I would still like to know a little bit more data as to why did they want to remove it outside of it just being a possible confounder. Because... As an independent variable, other studies have shown that people who can't speak English have a harder time with their post-discharge care and do have a higher likelihood of returning. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't catch how many of those patients. They don't clarify, do they, on how many were excluded for which cause? Yeah, so that's a great segue. Let's get to the results then. Let's actually run through some of these numbers. So there were about 1,124 potential patients. And out of those, 626 were excluded, so more than 50%. 227 patients just refused to participate. 189 of them had to be transferred to another hospital or out of the province. 88 had severe cognitive impairment. 71 couldn't speak English as their primary language, so they were excluded. 51 had a life expectancy of less than three months, and then three patients withdrew. Therefore, the study started with 1,124 potential patients, but only was able to include 495 of them. The mean age of these 495 patients was about 64 years old. It was split male and female, about 50%. Um, And 
when all of the comorbidities of these patients were added together and averaged, it was about 4.2 comorbidities per patient. And the four most common reasons these patients were coming into the hospital, this may sound familiar to most of us, heart failure, pneumonia, COPD, and a urinary tract infection. And this is what the portion is that got me excited about this article as well. I'm nodding my head in affirmative for those of you that aren't able to see me through the audio-only podcast. <laughs> so I think um, going a little bit more in-depth with the results, taking a look at Table 1, we can take a look at the patients themselves um, who were deemed not frail and see on either people who, weren't, people who were deemed not frail on either of the three scoring systems were noted to be, uh, noted to be younger, about 57 years old. Well, those that were deemed frail by the clinical frailty score, or as Beth said, those people who couldn't do 180L were a little bit older. They're about 69 years old. Those who were deemed frail by the timed uh, up-and-go test or the FREED score were about six years younger than that, so they were about 63 years old. The patients who deemed um, the patients who were deemed frail based on the clinical frailty score and one of the other scoring systems, one of the things I noticed is that they were much older. They were close to 76 years old. So when the clinical frailty score and another scoring system was used, either the FREED score or the timed up-and-go test, those patients, when taking a closer look at the table characteristics itself, were a good seven years older. Another interesting finding when looking through that first table was the number of comorbidities. On average, the, looking at all of the patients, the 495 that were included, there were about 4.2 comorbidities per person. But for those patients that were deemed frail by either the FREED score or the timed up-and-go test, they had about four core morbidities. Um, and that was actually pretty similar to those patients who were deemed not frail. They, too, had just about four comorbidities. But when the clinical frailty score was used, those patients had about six comorbidities. So those patients who couldn't do 180L, on average, had about six comorbidities. So there was a, when reading that, I thought to myself, hey, are these people sicker? Is the clinical frailty score picking up people who might actually have more comorbidities and might have more illnesses, which prevent them from being able to kind of do their regular activities of daily living, which the other scoring systems might not be able to. I know the study wasn't looking for that specifically, but it's just something on a side note. There was also a notable difference in the number of prescriptions for these patients when they were discharged. Patients who were deemed clinically frail by the clinical frailty score versus the FREED score or the timed up-and-go test, um, there were about 5.2 prescriptions at discharge for patients who were deemed not frail. Those deemed frail by the FREED score or the timed up-and-go test, there were about 6.5 prescriptions. Now here's the kicker. Those people that were deemed frail by the clinical frailty score they had eight or more prescriptions at the time of discharge. Again, I thought that prescription, just being able to take all these prescriptions, eight or more, correctly, um, would be quite difficult. So reading through that portion of the results and taking a look at Table 1, I thought that the clinical frailty score was doing a pretty decent job of picking up maybe more ill patients or patients with just more comorbidities and more prescriptions overall. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? And that is why you're supposed to read the tables in these articles. <laughs> so um, I have to admit, some of this made, I, I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Because to me, I see, okay, yeah, the frail people have more prescriptions. I don't know if that's cause and effect, but they're certainly confounders, right? Correct. These are sick people um, I'm not sh- that don't have AD, you know, that aren't able to do their ADLs and thus they're higher risk. And I'm just unsure as to what this term adds to my perception of that. Obviously, the more medications you have, the more complications that you're likely to have at home just based on medication errors and um, drug-drug interactions. So where is it that you're saying that this is adding um, in terms of the understanding? So as we continue to move forward and then we go on and we talk about the clinical frailty score methods and those patients who actually returned for 30 days, the the clinical frailty score actually showed significance in terms of trying to identify patients who actually did return for either readmission or death versus the other two scoring systems, the FREED score and the timed up-and-go test, those patients who had less comorbidities and less prescriptions, mm-hmm. there was no significance in terms of were they actually going to return or be readmitted. It just seems self-evident, right? I think it does. That's may- and maybe maybe that's I'm having a hard time getting past why this differently identifies high-risk patients than things you might already identify. And maybe maybe I'm being a little too... Sticklery, like maybe having a number to write down is helpful because um, it can I you know it is another way to risk assess the patients in a chart manner so that hospitals can identify you know like can objectively use an EMR to pull different data and evaluate things um, rather than just okay it seems like we could tell these are the patients that are going to return do we need another evaluation to do that. So so I think that right now for frailty, there is no research standard. There's no clinical score standard where you can compare what is frailty. We don't even have a definition. I agree with you um, in terms of how is this useful to us. In New York Times, they came out a year ago with more boxes, more check boxes, more metrics. I agree with you that if, if we were trying to utilize this, this might just be another metric. Because if we see it, more prescriptions, more, more illnesses, more... Um, portions of the assessment and plan, the more likely this patient is going to be to come back to the hospital because something is going to happen. Right. And I agree with that. I think that right now, though, in the terms of frailty and geriatric medicine, hospital medicine, general internal medicine, we still don't have any sort, we don't have any numeric system. We don't have any way to identify patients outside of our subjective thoughts that has been proven and used and validated multiple times. I think these authors are trying to utilize their scoring system to prove to us that, hey, we do have something. I agree, more data needs to be evaluated. There's more just so research. many confounders, right? That's the challenge. But maybe it's actually the number of prescriptions and has nothing to do with the self-reported, the, pre, the pre-hospital ADLs. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying it's, it feels like, okay, yeah, we could identify these were high-risk patients, and now we're just identifying them in a different way. Yeah. But... but I'm, I'm being narrow and that probably maybe I'm not thinking through all of the value of having that numerical system and um, in place that you know, can be used for future assessments. So, you know, thoughts, James? Do I you mean, have you a tease some of that out statistically. I, I don't know that we could do that with what we've been given, but it could be done, I think, with the data set that they have. Yeah, and it seemed interesting. Like, I was also interested in that it was um, plus or minus. It was either frail or not frail mm-hmm. rather than, you know, because they have a, a continuous variable one through nine, um, and it wasn't, you know, it was nine compared to five. Yeah. Because right? five is the cutoff, so yeah. any need for help. And 
I'm surprised that we don't get that in terms of stats. Well, and that, well, and I think some of their other figures were sort of helpful in, in explaining some of that. And you know, but you know, to your point, needing help with any one of uh, things that include shopping, finances, meal preparation, housework—that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So I, I agree. You know, this is an interesting article, like I said in the beginning, and I and I and I think it's something that requires a little bit more research. But trying to get more into understanding of what is frailty, looking through the results, and they actually tried to compare the clinical frailty score versus the Freed score versus the timed up and go test, and the ability to kind of take a look at all of those scores and see if there was any if there was an ability for all of the scores to find a patient frail was actually relatively poor. So taking a look at the frailty score, the clinical frailty score, and the timed up and go test, confidence interval was about 0.23 to 0.4. And again, they didn't correlate very well. When you looked at the Freed score and the clinical frailty score, again, relatively poor job of trying to identify the same patients who were frail. So I think we still, despite having different views of what a frail patient might be, we still do not have any sort of well-identified and easy-to-use scale for finding to define who is frail. And then moving on to research, they still we still don't have one specific criteria to use as well. I think inherent in your assumption is there's a value to the term frail, right? Yeah. And so that's, I guess maybe that's the assumption that I'm questioning. Like, what is the value to the term frail? And I think in this case, they're trying to say the value to the term frail is predicting 30-day readmissions. And that's where I'm unsure. Definitely, we're defining a term frail, and that seems reasonable, just looking at it as an independent predictor. To be fair, the authors say that in a different study, they did it looking at comorbidities and Mm -hmm. um, uh, other actual hospitalization measures to determine that the clinical frail score um, could could be independently useful, um, so but feel, that's still what I'm struggling with in my brain. And I feel like frailty goes along with the same thing as chronically critically ill. We still don't know, you know, how to define it correctly, or but it does come with a lot of negative impact down the road, which is readmissions, death, rehospitalizations, um, and other things as well. I, I think looking well, for and, oh, and sorry. so so to, to piggyback on that, once we've identified these frail patients, however we want to define frail, and I'm using air quotes here, um, <laughs> what do we do with that information? Are these patients, you know, what percentage of these patients have home health services? Uh, what sort of time frame did they have to see their PCP and or the specialist related to whatever they were admitted for? Uh, what kind of therapy services are they getting at home? Um, those kinds of things. So what do we what do we do about it? Let's say we 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 identify someone as frail. Then the next step, and I, this is not what this article is getting at. This article is getting at who's at risk. But then my next step is, you know, how do I how do I take better care of that that identified patient population? Well, and that's the exciting part. I mean, that's what makes this you know interesting. more interesting, right? Is to say how do we define how do we find them. Um, because maybe, you know, if OT is doing their ADL assessments, um, and they determine that this patient can't do this, um, maybe we do need to do more sort of internal hotspotting with the resources that are available at home health and not everyone gets everything that they can qualify for specifically, but we target it appropriately for the high versus low risk patient. Um, I would like to note because we skipped and skimmed over it. This was 
pre-hospitalization assessment. So this was the patient reporting before they went to the hospital. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't at the end of the hospitalization. This is the patient's opinion of how they were doing before they came into the hospital. That is yes. the clinical frailty score. Yes. The, time, yes. the timed up and go right. test and the freed score are performed within 24 hours of their right. discharge. So that was right. actually done during their hospitalization. And that in and of itself is super interesting, actually, right? Because it's the patient's perception of their of their well-being prior to hospitalization, mm-hmm. which may or may not actually be related to their well-being. Yeah. Um, you know, and probably independently, their perception of their well-being may have effects on their ability to manage at home. So, Which, the interplay with those two, I think, is something really interesting that's worth talking about. If, uh, for those of you following along at home, it, if you look at figure two, um, it basically looks at, uh, by uh, CFS score, uh, who was, you know, passing or failing their, their time to get up and go test. And the, there's a huge percentage of patients that are passing their timed up and go test, um, uh, even up to relatively high uh, frailty scores. Um, and, and I just thought that was very interesting. There's a lot of that, 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 that overlay between those two groups, and I don't understand entirely exactly why that is. Well, and there's no indication of mental health assessments here either, right? Correct. So if a patient is, is really depressed or isolated, um, their perception of frailty is going to be different than their get-up-and-go test, which actually then may explain why it's independently important. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. The freed Good portion point. had a little bit of that in it too, though, right? The yeah. yeah. Mental health as well. So taking a look at kind of the 30-day readmissions, out of the full 495 total patients, about 85 of them were readmitted um, or died within 30 days, and that accounts for about 17% uh, of the study population. Um, the patients who were classified as being frail by the clinical frailty score, um, and that meant for those patients that, were, that had a clinical frailty score of five or greater, they had a slightly higher risk for a 30-day readmission or death. So those that were considered frail by the CFS score, 24.1% of them had a uh, 30-day readmission or death versus about 13.8% of those that were deemed not frail by the CFS score were um, had a 30-day readmission or death. And the P-score for that was about 0.005. So patients being defined as frail based on the clinical frailty score seemed to correlate a little bit. But like Beth was saying, it may just be there's so many confounders who can't really tell the difference at that point. Um, Although I will, I will, you know, talk myself back a little bit. Maybe we don't care. Maybe this is so simple to ask patients that it's a better measure than trying to complexly analyze their other risk factors. Maybe we don't need to get the confounders out of there if we can just ask them and put them on a scale of one through nine and say, if it's higher than five. You're for, you have a high risk. Of- yeah. So, um, so patients being defined as frail based on the freed score or the timed up and go test, there was not an increased risk for the 30-day readmissions or death based on that. So patients being defined as being frail based on the clinical frailty score and either of the other two, they were at the highest risk of 30-day readmissions, which is about 25.6% of those patients were, um, excuse me, let me rephrase this. Patients who were deemed frail by the clinical frailty score or the timed up-and-go test or the clinical frailty score and the FREED score were at the highest risk of 30-day readmissions or death. So basically using two of these scoring systems, if you were deemed frail by both of them, you had the highest risk of returning for a readmission. 
Now, I agree that this is a very simple study, maybe, but I think it has a lot of utilizations um, and a lot of discussion to go forward with it. One of the main things that I that I thought about is I, I, I feel subjectively that yes, when I see someone who is up and moving, having to use a walker, having trouble with ambulation, I assume they're frail. If they're delirious, I assume that they would probably be frail. I like to use a numeric system, and I was hoping that the clinical frailty score would be helpful um, in terms of being able to identify some of these patients, because many a times what I run into in clinical practice is patients who want to go home, and they don't realize how debilitated laying in a bed for two, three days was, and they try to get up and go. Physical therapist may recommend a rehab. Occupational therapist may recommend 24-hour supervision, but these patients are steadfast on going home. I think this would be another card in my pocket that I could show to them and say, hey, I actually think it would be the opposite, right? Because you're doing the self-assessment prior to admission. So if they viewed, right, this the clinical frailty score is them saying, you know what, I was fine beforehand. And we're going to be able to say, no matter where you end up at the end of this hospital stay, you being fine beforehand decreases your risk of readmission, right? Actually, yeah, you are true. I'm sorry. I would like to backtrack and delete all of that from... <laughs> no, I mean, that's why we're discussing this, right? Yeah, we're yeah, learning I mean, from I each other. I can all out in post. No, no I'm, I'm kidding. No. I actually agree with Dr. Liston. You know, actually hearing the words come out of your own mouth, I agree that the clinical frailty score, like you said, Beth, was they took it pre-assessment or pre-hospitalization. So it was their view on how well they were doing. And if it was low, and this is this still needs more research, needs validation. But if it comes out that it becomes validated someday, we could use it as, hey, you were doing fine. The likelihood that you will be readmitted or have death is low. It's less than 10%. It's actually 13 or so. If, you, if your frailty score was five or less, yeah. then maybe you can go home. And maybe the only person that needed to be reassured was me as the doctor, not you as the patient. But I needed some more reassurement as the physician to say, hey, maybe it isn't such a bad idea, despite what I'm hearing from our other consultants and the rest of the team. I'm excited about that idea, actually, because I, I feel like we can identify the one the patients that are really sick, but maybe this helps us identify the ones that aren't as frail as we thought. So, well, for me to use this clinically, um, you know, I think a couple things. One is is I'm my big clinical decision is always home or not home. And what this article says is maybe that shouldn't be my big decision. My big decision really. Uh, even well, once I've made the decision of home versus not home, if I'm going home, like it's actually probably pretty important what you know, what services is this patient going to get? How you know, what am I you know, it's more than just looking at a PTOT note that says home or or placement. There's there's a lot more involved here in who's going to fly or not at home and who's going to have trouble and who's going to bounce back and who's going to you know die. Um, and um, and just me clinically having knowing that I should think about more than just uh, if if PTOT says the patient's okay to go home, I can send them home and they'll do great uh, is not necessarily the case. Um, so that clinically, that that's the bit of information that for me was helpful from this article. Any final words, Doctor Wiston? Um, I've been I'm coming around a little bit on it. I had to be convinced that the term frail had inherent value. Um, but I, I do think that assessment of function is important, and there's lots of different things we need to be looking at for 30-day readmissions um, for so many different reasons. And so I, I think it's good to highlight this and good to think about it from different perspectives, not just our core measures for CHF, um, but really making sure we think through function and mental health, however we do it, whether it's frail or otherwise. So 
So I thought it was a good um, article, not just because of what it provides now. I think there's still a lot of research required in terms of the clinical frailty score and how we can utilize it. But I think down the road, it has good utilization, just like James was saying. Because we can, as healthcare becomes more costly, we can figure out how we can get the appropriate patients, the appropriate support to make sure that they can have high quality life and enjoy the rest of their living outside of the hospital. And, and I think that was my main takeaway is how do we utilize this? How much more research can we use to identify patients, to use this score to help identify patients um, who might require a couple more resources, but help them in the long run? So for those listening who might, like me, have had trouble following different scores and things, my takeaway, correct me if I'm wrong, is that patients who are going home after a hospital stay um, can be assessed using the clinical frailty score of how they did prior to the hospital stay, and that will help determine, um, based on this data, the um, some effect on readmission rates. If they were more frail, they may be more likely to be readmitted. And then there's a couple other things that other st- um, scores they looked at they weren't as good. Um, and there's probably a number of confounders that are hard to tease out, but that's the takeaway. Correct, yeah. I think the main thing is still a lot more research needs to be done. Hopefully a randomized control trial. Hopefully this group takes it back. I hear there's big funding for randomized (laughs) control trials around frailty. (laughs) But 30-day readmission is important, and I think there's a lot of interest in that. So, Agreed. All right. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back with another one soon.